Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. All right. Welcome back to Hashing It Out. This is episode 35. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, along with my co-host, Colin Couchet. Say hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. And today's episode, we went on a, a nice long break for the holidays. but Yeah, let's just worry. call this season two. We'll call this season two, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the new <laughs> year. And to bring us back, we have quite a show. Um, our guests today are Jocelyn and Dan from Trail of Bits and Matthias from Change Security. Would you like to give us give yourselves a quick introduction, starting with uh, Dan to Jocelyn to Matthias, on who you are, how you got involved into the space, and what you currently work on? Yeah, sure. Hey, uh, I'm Dan Guido, the CEO and co-founder of Trail of Bits. Uh, we're a seven-year-old software security R&D firm that I founded and have now grown up to about 40 people. Uh, we specialize in blockchain security out of the interest of our own employees. Uh, wasn't really a planned decision, just something that came up about two to three years ago because we saw it was a really interesting set of technology and wanted to play with it and thought the skills we had would be useful. So I have Jocelyn here from our team. Uh, he's one of the leaders behind the tools that we write, the knowledge that we push out, and the audits that we do. So Jocelyn, go ahead, tell us about yourself. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. Yeah, so I'm Jocelyn Feist. I'm a security researcher at Tool of Bits. Uh, my background is mostly on vulnerability detection and exploitation. Uh, I've been involved in the secu- in the Ethereum ecosystem since something like two years, something like that. And I've been doing mostly audit and building of tools like Slitter or Etasplay. All right, thanks. Matthias, how about yourself? Yeah, um, happy to be here. I'm Matthias. I'm, I'm the COO in Chain Security. So uh, we are comparatively young company, um, definitely focused on Ethereum smart contract auditing. We came out of um, uh, university here when we started developing tools which automatically scan smart contract for security vulnerabilities, still as like master thesis, then later during PhDs, and then these methods became very applicable for Ethereum, obviously. And then um, I founded Chain Security like uh, a little bit more than a year ago. Um, uh, started out in February 2018 with our first um, employee and then grew to uh, currently 14 people um, based here in Zurich. Um, and my background is um, IT security from the more practical electrical engineering side of things. Um, and I um, uh, became active in the space um, quite some time ago, but um, as a user um, back when Ethereum wasn't Ethereum yet or wasn't there yet, but um, then um, joined Chain Security um, uh, beginning of last year and have been 
uh, active in that space since then. All right, that's a, quite the panel today, especially based on the topic we'd like to start with. And that is uh, recently inside of Ethereum, we tried to do a hard fork and a bug with one of the EIPs that was being uh, rolled out was found by uh, Chain Security, which they disclosed a few days before the hard fork. Um, can you give us, uh, I guess, a wrap up of the article that you produced? And then we can start talking about its uh, implications and consequences after uh, the security community got a hold of it. Sure, happy to. So, when um, uh, Ethereum does its network upgrades or hard forks, then um, uh, what happens really is that the roots of Ethereum change and um, the uh, new things are allowed. And um, that um, can have security implications, obviously. Usually it means we need to look out for new things. Um, new instructions are possible. Customers will come with new things. So when we looked into what Constantinople allows people to do, um, we saw that um, things get cheaper. Now, things get cheaper is generally good because uh, you can compute more on-chain. But um, as a company, it was kind of created when the first really big issue with smart contract security happened, the DAO bug back uh, like more than two, two and a half years ago now. Um, the problem of how that was mitigated was um, always that you need to prevent re-entrances, obviously. Re-entrances meaning you give some other contract, some other code, which you don't control, some control over your own code in one way or the other. And, and you need to carefully control what that other code can now do. One way it was done in the uh, aftermath of the DAO hack was limit the possibilities they can do very generally by giving them very little gas, gas in Ethereum being the um, fuel you need. And if you run out of gas, you get immediately canceled, your transaction gets reverted um, and nothing bad can happen. Now, this hard fork um, allowed some operations to be cheaper, most importantly, um, so-called store operations, operations which change state on the blockchain, which can save, which can change this global state, which Ethereum is about. And that allows to attack smart contracts, which in the past had this protection against um, these state changes just because you would not give you would not give along enough gas for a, you know, like foreign uncontrollable smart contracts in your own code. But now this little gas which was passed along is actually enough to do state changes. And um, with that, um, this classical reentrancy attack was something which could be now applied to smart contracts which were considered secure um, also by, by us as auditors because we expected certain um, calls to, to pre prevent these kind of re-entrancy attack while after that hard fork, they wouldn't do it anymore. And um, then we um, uh, wrote down this issue, we started researching them and um, saw that this is in practice possible, wrote up a post which um, we shared with the bug bounty um, of uh, the Ethereum Foundation, and um, it got published in the ETH security mailing list. And um, uh, very quickly, then the, the following 
activities happened, which uh, I'm sure we'll talk about soon. Um, yeah, so that that basically um, were the beginning of last uh, beginning of this week. So we have a mixed audience uh, from UX designers, but mostly they're engineers. Uh, can you maybe explain reentrancy as we knew it and what this new reentrancy kind of attack is? Or I don't even know if it's new. It's just a different, you know, something they didn't consider. Like, what are what is reentrancy really? Like, what is it? What actually makes a reentrancy attack? And what what happened when you lowered the gas price to actually uh, force uh, EIP twelve eighty three to kind of like come under question? So, actually, what a reentrancy really is is um, being discussed. There's a very technical description we are currently. Um, down on, which means you give some other smart contract control and afterwards you make some form of state change. Now, this doesn't help a lot, I think, for most of the audience. What a, um, most coders um, know um, or think of their programs as um, a linear or mostly linear execution. They know what happens first this and this and if now this and the other things happen and so on, but they kind of have a linear trace through the code. Um, and mm, with Ethereum, in certain points, especially if you want to um, transfer money to some other accounts, uh, money, so being it Ether, um, or you want to interact with some other code, you are calling it. Um, it it's similar like in normal, in other languages, if you if you call a library, um, or call an API. Now, imagine you call an API, let's say you um, some, some website, you load some website and you include the response into your own program and say like, based on this, we will now interact differently, right? Basically the, the external call has impact on your own code. Um, Similar to an, an injection attack. Similar to an injection attack. Now, the crazy thing here is um, reentrancy attacks are um, more powerful than an injection attack because they allow this outside code to call into your code again. It's like if the external website could directly go into your web server and quickly call some, let's say, a function in there, which then has impact on how you continue with that um, uh, request you made. And of course, this suddenly allows um, changes into in that smart contract we are currently in, which you didn't think of. Suddenly, they might change a variable, which is um, considered uh, not changeable during that line of code. And that will... Um, mean, okay, now now some assumptions you made, perhaps you checked that you have enough tokens before you make a call. And then, yeah, you're fine, you have enough, but this reentrancy allows other code to withdraw all tokens. And now you don't have them anymore, but you th still think you have it because you think in this linearly way of first I check, then it's okay, then I do something, and then I save something. But um, in the meantime, this attacker code could have changed. And this so, 
And so previously, before this particular hard fork, um, many of the calls that could have been susceptible to an attack like this um, were too expensive. So you didn't, you just basically assumed that um, based on the way these calls already worked, you couldn't do reentrancy because you would never have enough gas to do a state change. Because every time you do anything on the EVM, it costs gas, especially, and it's, it's operation uh, dependent. And with certain calls, whether it be send and transfer, I think it's send and transfer, is that right? That's um, correct. Yeah, that you'd never have enough gas. It would be too expensive to continue doing this reentrancy attack. So they were considered secure. And this, and what the CIPA did was make it less expensive to do these types of things for these two functions, which then opened up all of the previously deployed contracts who had a pattern like this um, to possibly be vulnerable because they were now like that assumption of they'll never have enough gas was no longer true after this EIP change. And so, yeah, it's if, a great story. That's, you know, oh, let's just make everything on Ethereum more efficient. We'll lower the gas costs. Everything will run faster. And nobody looked at it and thought about it for like two seconds and said, well, don't we depend on that for reentrancy protection? <laughs> and then yeah. the chain security people thought about that for like 10 seconds and were like, oh, this is a bad thing. We should tell everybody about it. <laughs> Um, so, but yeah, so, the layman's terms here is it just loosens the restrictions on reentrancy. So there's a tiny window of opportunity, and this thing kind of blew it open a little bit wider, so that more attacks were possible than before. So actually, that's that's kind of a point that I'm kind of curious about personally is why the why the hell didn't anybody think about this until like 24 hours before the release? Hey, so M Matthias and I and everybody else that's doing security have so much work on our hands that we can't sit around and police every single EIP. Um, you know, even Martin at the Ethereum Foundation, like Martin's got his handful just trying to make sure we don't have an unintentional fork because different client implementations diverge. Um, so, uh, you know, we're all trying to run businesses. Everybody's got to keep the company afloat with money to pay our employees. And nobody's really paying us to look at every single EIP. So what this really does is it reinforces that it depends on our own personal interest and the hobby time that we have, which is very small, to take a look at one of these EIPs in detail. And the real analysis behind the um, kind of security impact of, of this particular EIP took a long time. Like I had to pull Jocelyn and Gustavo and Evan and like half my team off projects they were working on to scan the whole blockchain, figure out all the repercussions, try and come up with remediations. And uh, honestly, like it's it's not a zero cost, it's actually a negative cost. Like I lost money by trying to help with this incident. Um, so donate, so that, to your, uh, donate to your ETH address, which we will post in. <laughs> <laughs> sure, I mean, whatever, I'll take it. I'm, I'm not gonna refuse anybody's money, but, or well, I, I'll take that back. I will refuse some people's money, but uh, <laughs> I'm not, not going with any scam coins today. Um, but like th this, this really brings up the point that th th there's very little security expertise around. And if you want that kind of input, you need to, uh, pull that input in somehow. Um, and since it wasn't done in this case, uh, you know, we, we get the chain security people who, who decide to start poking around some area of Ethereum for, you know, no reason at all. And then discover this issue that really ought to have been obvious. So you're, it's like. We'll get into some of the more technical details in a moment, but I just want to front load with with this. You you are the CEO of a company. You are doing this literally pro bono for the benefit of the community. 
what can the community do to make not only your life easier, but perhaps build a business or an ecosystem around supporting this open source software that, that people are in protocol that people are, are, you know, making proposals for and changing? Like, do you feel like there's, there's something maybe we can do better as a community to facilitate uh, catching these kind of bugs sooner rather than later? Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit of a tragedy of commons kind of kind of deal because it's not any one individual's responsibility to police the EIPs that come out. It's it's the whole communities, right? Um, so it's it's not necessarily a business, but I, I I think the Ethereum Foundation probably needs to set up a, a a more detailed approval process for EIPs, where you can't pass go unless uh, certain things get um, reviewed by a security expert that they trust, um, and and that that comes at a cost, right? Like somebody has to has to pay for that. Um, what we decide, well, what we recommended, so- I'll include this, this, here. this blog post that has a lot of these details in the description. And the uh, and the white paper or security analysis you guys put out, because I mean. that has some amazing recommendations in it. And I hope you get to that in a sec. Right, yeah, so that, that's what I'm skipping ahead to a little tiny bit because um, you, know, you probably don't need to review every single EIP. There are a lot of EIPs out there that don't change anything security critical. But there are a lot of things that you could just keyword search on and say, ah, oh, that's going to be a bad one, right? Like things that affect contract upgradability, things that affect gas costs. Um, certain, like if, if, if you uh, modify the semantics of an existing instruction, um, like those things are dangerous and require a lot more study than things that don't do those things, right? So you can imagine even like a GitHub bot that just flags certain issues as, wow, this is like security review required. And then the Ethereum foundation has to pull in somebody, whether it's someone like Matthias or someone like I, or someone like Jocelyn, um, to provide some kind of statement of like, you know what, we don't think you should do this <laughs> or here's how you might do it better. These are the, these are the implications of doing this across the blockchain that how it, not how it currently exists. I, I don't, I don't want to scream doom and gloom this entire time because the, um, total amount of damage associated with uh, deployed contracts uh, that this would have had uh, what with who this would have impacted had this gone through isn't incredibly large that we know of so far, right? Yeah, I saw like two test contracts, I think, that were on the well, chain that got impacted. They weren't even like real live I don't, because there's a lot of, there's going to be a lot of media associated with um, the postponement of, you know, how uh, terrible Ethereum is or how we don't have our shit together and so on and so forth. And I would like to at least give a the reality of the potential risk or like the, the known risk of doing this type of thing. I think more importantly, the, the, the what we've learned from this entire process is what you just described is figuring out how to go about in, uh, uh, looking at EIPs appropriately for the changes that they're making so that we can incentivize people to look at them the correct way before throwing them on the main net. Uh, can can y'all talk about that just a little bit? I think we are super lucky that this problem wasn't worse than it is. Nice. Um, however, however, I have to caveat this, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure Matthias wants to say this too. The result of our analysis was not conclusive. It's not exhaustive. Yeah. Like the tools that Chain Security has, the Trail of Bits has, and the ones we pulled in from the Evim uh, folks um, do not guarantee that we have a precise analysis of the entire blockchain. So there could be people affected right now that we don't know about. Um, and that's another kind of, you know, discovery here that we don't really have the tools to effectively monitor everything that goes on in the blockchain. 
So it's probably worth it to not change, not pull the rug out from underneath people uh, when they deploy a smart contract and expect that it works a certain way. Um, so there's another discussion here around what is the mutability of certain ways that Ethereum works? Like can the hard fork uh, or the hard forks that we plan in the future uh, change the behavior of existing contracts, even in minor ways, because even if they don't introduce a re-entrancy attack, they might modify business logic or the way the application works. Um, and that might be just as bad depending on the scenario. Uh, so all this, I think, really came up today or like yesterday. Um, but again, it's one of these things that's obvious in retrospect. You're writing these tiny little computer programs that you depend on ultimately. Uh, if, if you're considering that that code will never change, shouldn't the blockchain never change too? Um, so <laughs> I don't know what the answer to that is. I, I think well, it should never change. I, I thought you you guys in your in your uh, analysis put, put out some pretty good recommendations in that you just don't change old stuff, but you can implement new stuff. Um, so meaning like, you don't change the behavior of S store, but you could create a new type of store, which is cheaper and maybe more restrictive or has different security requirements around it so that you can prevent this kind of stuff. Can you talk a little bit about your recommendations? Yeah, the main challenge here really is that um, Ethereum will keep moving. And um, as um, someone who has seen this from both sides of where like stuff halts to a grind because you are in this what I call Jenga coding mode, where you're afraid to move any piece because you are not under control anymore to what kind of implications it has. And basically the whole project is not moving along anymore versus the one where you know what's going on, what kind of implications it has, and you can do changes. That's very important. And I think um, actually this current discussion where we started to look into immutabilities and stuff which we would consider changeable in the future, this is important for us as auditors because we can advise our clients on safe now, but not guaranteed to be safe in the future. And um, it was brought up also by um, uh, Vitalik himself, uh, like very shortly after this um, um, discussion about what to do um, now that um, gas cost suddenly is something we need to be considering critical, right? Gas wasn't considered that critical before. Um, and now it is clearly. So when we start to add a lot more complexity into Ethereum, which people implicitly base their security on top of, then we will stop having any um, things which we can move on anymore. It will be an immutable blockchain. The only thing we even, even changes where we say future opcodes, future instructions should be possible. Um, but never change existing ones. Actually, changes existing ones for re-entrancies because an attacker currently with a re-entrancy has certain gas costs on their own side, uh, which have a certain amount which you cannot get rid of, but new attack code, which cheaper instructions potentially can get rid of it. So I think um, the the kickoff of this discussion was very good where we kind of think about what will the Ethereum community think of almost or basically unchangeable things and where do they say, oh, look, in the future, we expect that to change. So better make sure your smart contract will stay safe. Let's say the global block gas limit, right? Um, that's something where we know it's going to change um, eventually. Can it 
what would happen if it goes lower a lot? Yeah, a lot of smart contracts don't work anymore because they need a limit. They need some gas for sure. Um, but then we expect that never to go lower, always to go higher. Do we really? Is that just an implicit assumption? So I really like to have that discussion going forward, which is helping us as security auditors in the end, because we know what to rely on and to flag smart contracts, which might be vulnerable if they ever change that. And if then we see, oh, it's going to be changed, um, we can at least warn, we can effectively scan for it. We know the implications. And for other stuff where we know it's immutable, we can get very strong guarantees. Because to me, initially, the huge appeal of Ethereum was that it can um, encode certain like real world things into smart contracts, which then will guarantee that for the foreseeable future. And with chain security, of course, we, we are very much into this formal verification, into uh, proving that um, certain properties hold. And this relies on the rules don't change, or at least some rules don't change. So we really like to, to tell perhaps some um, authority government authority that, okay, these people will never be able to steal those funds because we mathematically proved that, but that relies on some things which should not change. It would be good if we know that those are considered almost immutable. I want to just highlight something that was buried in there that Matthias mentioned. So right before he started speaking, you mentioned, oh, well, you know, we're not going to change existing functionality. We're just going to add new ones. We're only going to add new instructions. And the rabbit hole here goes super deep. Mm -hmm. Like even when you make these minor modifications, like let's make a new instruction that's just like call, but instead of call, it's cheaper than call. Well, that enables new attacks too. Uh, since attacks that were possible that cost a certain amount of gas now might become possible because you lowered the, 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 the requirement to run an instruction with nearly identical functionality. So even these tiny little modifications end up having these ripple effects through the behavior of and the possibilities of calling into existing contracts. Um, so I, I, I'm with Matthias here. Like we do lots of verification forward projects as well, and it makes it a really hard target for you to like. How am I supposed to say that this code is safe if the underlying execution model can change six months from now? Well, it seems um, like a time-based approach of, to safeness because, like, if you think about that from like a, I guess, more higher perspective. If you only uh, make forward changes, then you're emboldening the, the attack surface. You're making the, the attacker stronger while making the defender weaker in some cases. Yeah, uh, the, 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 the big brain answer is, well, I guess you need a security audit every six months now. Well, I guess <laughs> it may be. Like, well, that's, that's, that speaks to another point that there's not a lot of, like, once you deploy something, typically there's not a lot of uh, monitoring of the deployed contracts with respect to changes. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and tooling and infrastructure around that whatsoever, and and it's clear that we're a we're still an experiment. Like the Ethereum EVM is, is still learning, growing, becoming more efficient. I mean, look at the changes on the horizon to make it more scalable at layer zero or one or whatever you want to call it. That's clear they're going to happen and have effects. And and I, th I think Andreas Antonopoulos speaks about this concept quite a bit in reference to the Bitcoin blockchain, the ossification of the protocol. Um, allows you to more effectively build layers on top of it. And I don't see the hardening of the protocol happening anytime soon, especially with a lot of the changes we're trying to make to make it more efficient so that it can scale. And 
people shouldn't expect it to. There's no reason to expect it to. You just kind of have to experiment with it until we get to a point of scale that's reasonable when we say, all right, this is good enough. And then we can start making these hard assumptions on things that won't change and can change and should change and so on and so forth. But until then, I don't, I don't see a need to do that. Do you, do you feel the same way? Anyone? So one issue is that um, people are already building business and application on top of like the current state of the two. Um, so we can we can need um, to have some kind of guarantee and to have some kind of way to ensure the code for this application. It's not like Ethereum is experimental. Nobody is using it uh, for any real case uh, application and anything because people are, are, are building a real application on top of it. So I don't know like how, how long they could wait to have something more mature. Let's say. I'm, not, I'm not saying wait, but build it with the, with the fact in mind that things will change. You need to keep that in mind and, and, and maybe allocate resources to constantly monitoring really take a look at how to uh, like migrate contracts and up and make sure they're upgradable and for future cases that you may see coming um, don't don't make hard set boundaries on what works and what doesn't work or what's secure and what isn't secure right now because there will be changes and that's I think that's just a mindset or mentality we should have when deploying smart contracts so the question that I ask is what if there's a change that impacts the upgradability of your contract like to me it seems as though, um it seems as though uh we are we are i like the you 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 definitely made it clear again that it, this is an experimental chain it was always meant to be an experimental chain it's a proof of concept i feel and that there's still a lot of work to be done to figure out what the what good looks like you know what i mean and you know right now what this has shown me is that immutability is a lot more valuable than i thought um, and that, uh, you know, if people are going to be building business processes, it needs to be a final form ultimately. Now for now, I mean, obviously we're not going to have that, but this is not the final form. We don't, we don't know what the final form looks like yet. We have issues with scalability in terms of transaction speed. We are adding features like state channels because we no noticed the need for layer two solutions. Um, and now we realize that we don't have the ability to change the protocol very much once it's released. So of course the very first version of this release, which is the, you know, the one we have might not be optimal for, you know, and future proof. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I, I still feel like we, you can't expect developers to know these details. If you're going to be in the final form, you can't expect them to worry about, you know, nobody worries if the TCP, if TCP, if IP four change, changes they just know that they have to migrate to ip6 or use nat but they don't they don't want to concern themselves with the details of the i of the ip stack on their on their system they don't need to know this this stuff they need to know how do i build stuff and how am I, how do i build it safely and they can't just monitor all the security uh security uh, mailings to see if their app breaks or even expect them to understand it if, if that happens, it needs to be a, a lot more open than it currently is. And um, so the hardening might, you know, might be a different shape. I don't know. So on, on this, like when you start like saying very um, value immutability a lot more, um, I think that is um, quickly leading to not moving on anymore. 
And um, in the real world, um, when you say like, okay, I start my company, I am um, like the laws of Switzerland, the laws of the US apply to me, you know, they are going to change and you are going to adapt. So um, in addition to the monitoring, basically what you need to know is when do I need to adapt? Things are going to change for sure. Don't expect that this thing will run forever unchanged. Know that upgrades might come that you need to do something. If you're an ongoing active business, it's your duty to stay technologically fine, uh, business-wise fine with the processes. Um, now, when there was the bug about um, the um, uh, uh, Intel processors, like the, what was it called? Spectre. Spectre. Um, then, um, yeah, now suddenly things which were considered safe yesterday aren't safe anymore doesn't mean the end of the world or that we should not ever um, uh, upgrade our processors anymore to from the ones we consider safe, right? Um, so to this regard, I would more say, yes, we need monitoring. We need to know what's going on. We need a process around informing people about um, um, perhaps longer term cycles for testing, for um, that each company who runs something on mainnet Ethereum also runs it on Robston on some test net, which gets upgraded usually earlier to see what's going on there. Um, that the Ethereum community itself um, more encourages this, okay, this EIP is going to change the following things, not only in the technical sense, but also in the practical sense, like, look, exchanges, this is something which might affect you especially, and so on. So that um, like, like lawyers would do for their clients for big companies, right? They say, oh, this upcoming regulation change, this will impact us. Um, so then we need to figure out, is it the job of, of the government, basically, of the Ethereum Foundation to, to do this, to encourage that, or is that something where each company needs to employ someone like um, Dan or us to keep monitoring this, to tell them about it? Both might work just fine. Um, Let me flip that, that around on you, okay? You're a business and you are running your business on this blockchain. It is a protocol and there is literal value and money being generated from this, this, this blockchain. You're, you need to know that that business model that you've set up has assumptions which you can guarantee for the remainder of your business. So let's just say they decide to increase the gas price of something for one reason or another. That could impact your business line, right? It's not really a good idea to set your business on a shaky foundation where you can't kind of have certain fundamental guarantees about how you are able to manage your finances and your money external to you. Now, obviously, there's always going to be situations like that. But like my question is, um, do you really feel like maybe this is so I, I think the point I'm trying to really make here is not don't stop innovation. That's not something we need to we need to do. But I'm, I'm questioning whether or not um, we're going to see the final form of what this kind of, pro, you know, kind of system would look like, you know, emerge from Ethereum or if we're just still learning that 
the, the things we need to know to build that system. If that well, if you're talking sense. about if you're talking about building a business on Ethereum and whether or not that's a smart idea, it's sure it's a smart idea. You just need to be aware of what can change. And when that's more clear, you can make better decisions around how you build your business. Don't automatically assume because you say the word blockchain that nothing will ever change. That's just not how things work. And if, if you just, just be smart about what you're building and more along like the, the relative time guarantees of when things can change like know how things can change and and how long and how long of a i guess a guarantee you have on those types of things if you build your business that way then it's smart and you can you can you can adapt like matthias was saying so as long as you're you build with the ability and knowledge of being able to adapt then you should be okay because things are going to change regardless of what you build on there is no such thing as perfect immutability forever even the Bitcoin blockchain changes. That's that's supposedly like you know the most. Uh, I I would call it the most stubborn in terms of change. <laughs> nice. <to say. laughs> I cannot mention a, a small little shout out here. So I I, I don't think we're going to resolve this discussion this uh, this no. issue on this podcast. No. Um, so I think in the meantime, uh, yeah, companies should probably be familiar with how uh, contract upgrades and contract migrations work. And if there's one authoritative reference for that, it's the two set of blog posts that Jocelyn wrote. Um, so, you know, in the meantime, we're not going to get a fully hardened blockchain that never changes tomorrow. Um, at the same time, uh, the changes that we have in the future are, you know, against the best efforts of Matthias and I and everyone else working on security on the Ethereum blockchain, we're going to have an incident like this again, guaranteed. Um, there's like as you're changing this kind of functionality, there's just no way that unintentionally, at least once, you're going to encounter an issue. Uh, oh, my dog is in the room. <laughs> um, so uh, it's really incumbent on people developing smart contracts right now to ensure that they can run an upgrade when they need it. And that means also including a migration. Um, so yeah, if, if that's a thing that you're not familiar with yet, you should check out our blog and Jocelyn's papers on that exact subject. Just to put a lid on that. <laughs> so where do we go from here? Like what, like what, what do you want to talk about? Is there something that has been pressing on your mind? Have these things brought to light other types of things we haven't gotten to? I mean, there's a million other security issues in, in Ethereum that we could talk about. So earlier this morning, we published a list of uh, recorded videos from an event that we held in December where we got together some of the best experts in Ethereum security and blockchain security more generally to speak about uh, all the problems that they're working on and that they've observed. Uh, we have an event in New York called Empire Hacking, runs every other month. And in December, I do a half day event. that's kind of a mini conference. So I themed it around blockchain security this time. And um, th there are some great talks up there if, if reader, uh, if <clears throat> listeners would uh, like to take a look. I'll link that in the show notes as well. So yeah. one of the things that 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 kind of uh, has been on, on my mind as well is the nature of of smart contracts in Ethereum. Do you feel like we need full Turing complete smart contracts? Obviously, that makes your job harder if you can't form, use formal verification techniques on on these things. Um, would it be better? Do you think if the if if we weren't adopting such a flexible smart contract system and really just had what we basically needed for a, a root chain and delegated all the more complex operations off-chain to, to layer two solutions? Well, so I, I think what strikes me is that um, in, in a lot of safety-critical environments, like 
you know, embedded systems, airplanes, uh, things that actually affect human life. Uh, there are really strict requirements around eliminating certain kinds of functionality from the code that gets written, uh, like eliminating recursion. Uh, because while you can use formal methods to prove or disprove that certain things can happen, it's harder to do so. Um, in these smart contract environments, it seems like people are willing to take those steps. We prefer to have the flexibility rather than limit people to say like a domain specific language that lets you do a lot of things, but doesn't let you do some. Um, I think there's a really strong argument for following the safety critical kind of approach. Um, but, you know, again, this is something that like I'm armchair, uh, you know, commenting, there, there's not much control I have over how Ethereum does or does not work with smart contracts or any other blockchain, unless I go and build one myself. Um, so I, I, I think the reality is that we, we have to deal with this kind of complexity. And that's why companies like Trailobits and Chain Security have invested in a lot of this really heavyweight automated reasoning because it's the only way that we can get any kind of understanding about what, what goes on at a low level. I think it's also like pointed to put out that like the security community overall is relatively new, new to the scene and it's, and it's quite small. Um, like take for instance, the, this last DEF CON was the first DEF CON where we actually had a security track. And this last year probably marked uh, a, a rapid growth in the security community overall, but it's still relatively small to where it should be based on its importance in, in what Ethereum is used for or what blockchains are used for. Well, you know what? I actually took, so I'm going to say something positive. <laughs> if you look at any <laughs> other uh, like technology area, if you, if like when we're reviewing a kernel driver or um, a piece of windows software or like a web application or something like that, um, we're not using automated reasoning techniques. We're not using formal methods. We're not providing our clients proofs or, or guarantees that their code works correctly. Uh, they don't have a spec. They're not testing against properties. Like even though the security community for Ethereum and for smart contracts and for blockchain stuff is just is, is small, the kinds of techniques that we can bring to bear on these problems is extraordinarily better than for security more generally. <clears throat> so yeah. I don't. I actually think that it's a bad thing if the security community gets to be too big. Um, what I'd rather have is I'd rather have a small number of people with really pointy sticks. Like I really <laughs> want to have very effective techniques that we can deploy that scale well um, and that provide uh, like guarantees that provide really strong assertions that the code works well. Uh, what I don't want is I don't want an army of people rolling around pointing out, oh, that's a re-entrancy, that's a re-entrancy, like one at a time. That, that that's that's like a dystopia in, in, in my mind. Um, so I got to give the smart contract world credit here. Uh, instead of starting at at like floor one, we've kind of entered the discussion <clears throat> at like the tenth floor, um, because from the get go, companies like Chain Security and Trail of Bits have have brought these really heavyweight techniques um, into a practical use case. So that, that, so I'm, I'm curious, how did you guys do your analysis? What tools are you using? And like, this is a lot of work to be done in a very short period of time. What does your system look like? What does your architecture look like? How did you get this? how did you get this done so damn fast? And like, how, did, how, what tools are you actually using? And how can somebody who's curious about this start using those tools? It's shield time. Let's go. <laughs> I want to hear Matthias first. 
Um, so um, Hubert, our CTO, uh, who found that bug just entered. So um, uh, I'll actually um, give him the um, go for that one, to to so that I don't blunder it uh, by saying some words I'm not totally familiar with in the wrong way. I'm so, going to do the same thing with Jocelyn. <laughs> Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, so first of all, yeah, um, I, I, I know this was a moment ago, but I have to follow up on what Dan said. Uh, the, the blog posts on migration and, and contract upgrades are, are really excellent. I can, I can recommend them also. So, uh, but back to the question on, on which tools we are using. So um, in general, um, to find the, um, I mean, in general, we're using all kinds of tools. But I guess your question was more targeted at which tools we were using uh, to find vulnerable contracts uh, for, for this particular uh, re-entrancy uh, for Constantinople, I guess, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, I want to know what your tools, I want to know how you did this. Like, how did you accomplish this feat so, so quickly? I guess to give it overall framework or like, a, I guess, a, or like a mental model for people, this, this was... Uh, Chain Security released an article that showed a possible new reentry attack, and then that hit the Ethereum community maybe 40 hours, roughly 40 hours before the hard fork was uh, scheduled to be to hit. And I'd say within 24 hours, uh, they turned around an article that that gave uh, quite of it wasn't exhaustive, but it was quite extensive in terms of the the the, the range of. Um, analysis that they did. And we're asking now, what tools did they use to get this analysis done so quickly? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So from our side, I mean, first of all, um, as you said, it was not exhaustive. So we, we first focused on very valuable contracts. And uh, here, us and Trade of Bits had slightly different approaches. So uh, we compiled different lists of, of contracts, which uh, was good also because we, we were looking through different things. But um, so yeah, the, we were we were first trying to figure out what contracts are, are most important to look at. Then um, what are we looking for in these kind of contracts? And we are looking for very certain conditions, uh, very specific conditions, right? So that this reentrancy can appear. So first of all, the most basic condition is there needs to be a call to a different uh, address. Otherwise, you cannot have a re-entrancy at all. Then, then following this call has to be some state change. And there has to be a separate function which um, does uh, some kind of state update. And this state update has to be very cheap. So as we discussed before, the whole point of this new re-entrancy is that there's this now cheaper option to do this update. So we have to find a function like that that, that does, uh, does this. So basically, first we we downloaded um, uh, the contract contracts. We identified the valuable contracts. We downloaded contracts. We uh, found that um, which ones contained these relevant parts. So to figure that out, we we used different kinds of tools. Uh, one was the um, uh, Tomasz, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but Tomasz Kolinko, um, who has uh, evm.org. Um, so evwem.org, um, a decompiler there, which we used to identify certain contracts that, that might be vulnerable. And then we used uh, all kinds of other tools um, uh, to, to figure out which 
might be candidates and in the end we we looked at them uh, manually uh, we one of the tools we also used uh, was our securify tool which uh, is uh, open source uh, as well be yeah uh, because this can identify uh, one one of the two um prerequisites quite well and quite efficiently just because not everyone might know it so um, the tool is called securify and you will like find it on securify.ch um, uh, to easily give it a spin but with the help of the ethereum foundation actually who gave us a grant last summer to continuously develop that and to open source it we were able to spend some time and um, release it publicly now Awesome. So uh, that, that the fact you br uh, brought in the Ethereum, up the Ethereum Foundation kind of um, raises another question I have, which is what is what was it like reporting this? That's uh, let's, let's, Dan used cool. different tools. I want to hear what Dan used. Oh, okay, so go go ahead. <laughs> so just like Matthias, I'm going to let Jocelyn explain. So Jocelyn's the primary author behind Slither, which is our static analyzer. I actually think that it's quite funny that chain security and trail of bits are are on these two parallel tracks of development where we have very closely related tools that just work a little tiny bit differently in the details. Which um, was helpful in this scenario, in my, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, certainly it was extremely helpful in this in this uh, this scenario. We got some additional coverage. Um, we were able to look at some areas they weren't. They were able to look at a lot of areas we couldn't. So uh, it was it was good. But yeah, so Jocelyn, tell us how Slither works and what you did. Yeah, so basically, I follow like uh, an approach which is kind of similar to what Chat Security did. So I started by targeting like the high-profile contract that you can find on uh, on a test scan. So like the contract with uh, a minimum amount of transaction, a minimum amount of ether, and um, I wrote a, a detector in Slither, which is a solidity static analyzer, to kind of detect this uh, really particular pattern of frequency that can be affected by uh, this constantly available uh, outfork. So. Um, after reviewing the result for the like high uh, profile uh, target, uh, I continue to extend like the analysis to any kind of contract uh, I could find from from a call on a test game. And um, something which is also interesting is that um, Solidity is um, Slitter is working at the Solidity level, and for this particular William Twenty. Um, you need a really precise model of what uh, is the gas cost of your contract. So to kind of to to uh, be able to analyze this uh, with my tool, I also combine Slitter with, with another analyzer, which is Monticore, which is a symbolic execution engine, which allows me to kind of uh, have a precise information about the gas cost of uh, the function. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, and then if I had to recap and like at the highest level possible, um, this EIP uh, allowed for a specific type of pattern um, to exist that allowed for the, bu the bug to happen. You codified this pattern somehow, searched across all the blockchain smart contracts you can get a hold of, um, with Slither looking at Solidity code and the other tools looking at EVM code in a lot of instances. Um, for this particular pattern. That gave you a set of possible contracts that could have this bug, and then you manually reviewed those to look for whether or not it was actually vulnerable. Yes. That's and what was nice about this is that, like, and that's what I was saying earlier, is that because they work slightly differently, 
um, you can you can get you, you came up possibly with different sets or or uh, re-verified results from pre from each other's sets so that you had a stronger guarantee that there was a vulnerability in a given contract or you got a larger search space. Yeah, that's exactly true. And it's actually what in Ethereum happens um, often, right? We have parity and get, um, we have like different companies doing very similar things, but covering each other and terror of bits and chain security are similar in that sense too. For example, the Slither is um, analyzing Solidity. Um, so the high level language and, um, the, and it can then be very specific towards certain securities checks, which can be found there. The Securify tool looks at the EVM bytecode level. So um, it can analyze all smart contracts which are out there, even if we don't know the source code, which is of course powerful because um, as we figured out during this search was that for a lot of high value smart contracts out there, which hold a lot of ether, well, they don't publish the source code also for reasons to a little bit hide into what's going on. They, they're usually um, multi-sig wallets um, and now certain checks are way harder to write this way just because the EVM level is not as easy to understand um, than the solidity code. Um, so there you always have this trade of usability versus like completeness, uh, amounts of checks, false positives and so on. And that's what I like about like you see, oh, they're going this direction. Let's cover a different direction to have as complete a picture as possible. Um, and it, it's not only us, right? They are, the security community is um, full of very interesting people who are really, really good at what they do, um, often working alone from somewhere and then building tools um, which they open source and which then help everyone. Um, Trellop Bit is a great example for being able as like an old, like older and also, um, let's say, um, nicely funded company who can go out and they, they actually open source most of their work and we can build on top of it. Um, so it's not like chain security is not using some of the tools of trade of bits. And I'm sure trade of bits is using the tools we like to open source too, whenever we can. Um, so that's definitely a huge strength um, of the Ethereum world where you, you have these different um, clients, different companies, different security tools to look at things from very different perspectives to cover as much as possible. Well, I want to continue on that line. I want to say before we move on that um, part of the reason for the postponement, not all of it, but part of it, uh, like during the call when when we were trying to decide whether or not what, what, what to do based on what was going on was the lack of information. Um, we weren't sure of the total risk or uh, surface of vulnerability of all the contracts based on this change. And because of that lack of information, it was best to propone it to, to, to hear back from the analysis that we that we got. Um, and I think that's that's an important thing is that one, if this if we can find ways to incentivize looking at these things earlier, we can we can make better decisions quicker so we don't have hard fork postponements in the future. And two, um, I think it was a very good decision to postpone based on the lack of information. Um, and that's that's a it's it's something that I think will get a lot of critical eyes on the community because we don't have our shit together, but it was the right decision at the time to um, not introduce changes that could possibly have massive consequences uh, and, and, and just postpone something instead. 
Yeah, I do agree. Like the the Ethereum community did uh, the good decision in the short amount of time that that they had. So it's good to see like they are going toward like uh, this good process of decision. So <clears throat> when they decided to postpone, didn't the wasn't the code already deployed on most most nodes to actually do the hard fork? Um, how did that postponement happen? Oh and man! How did it go? So, like I don't I don't know the story behind that, and that's what I was going to ask this earlier. Like when you reported this to the Ethereum group, and they made the decision to postpone the 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 the, uh, the hard fork. What? How, how do the brakes work? How the hell did they <laughs> okay, do that? Okay, so I was in a lot of the communications channels and, and initiatives that sprung out immediately after the decision decision was made. Um, a incredibly fast uh, report on what the state of things were, the postponement um, was drafted uh, with a lot in part due to uh, my crypto holding onto that and Hudson Jameson spearheading a portion of that. Uh, there's a blog post that what, like, what everyone saw basically is the result of this um, article uh, that came out within hours of the decision being made, which gave uh, instructions on what the people who were impacted needed to do. That was mostly exchanges, node operators, and um, and miners. And so what basically what they needed to do was Geth and Parity released the releases that uh, fixed the issue because like you said, a lot of people already had their, their infrastructure set up to handle this, this hard fork change automatically as it was supposed to roll out. What they needed to do is then upgrade to a new version that didn't have this happen basically uh, indefinitely postponed the hard fork change. And so a huge communications campaign happened in order to reach out to all of the people who needed to do this such so that the hard fork didn't happen, which was get, reaching all the exchanges, large node operators, stakeholders, and, and, and miners. And that was a massive email campaign, Twitter campaign, social media campaign from uh, the people involved to get that done. And it, I was, I was, I was quite impressed with how fast it happened and how efficiently it happened. Well, all right. Um, that, by the way, incredibly impressed. Um, can we use this as an opportunity to dash doubts that uh, Ethereum is it's like, so a lot of naysayers on the Ethereum network say that Ethereum is actually centralized because the, you know they're, they're being driven by a core group of people who make the ultimate decisions for things. And I know that's a bunk argument, but maybe we could use this as an opportunity to say, that's actually not what happened here. Because um, even though they, they were able to stop this hard fork so quickly, um, it wasn't a centralized process. They had to literally reach out to people or and organically communicate that they needed to adjust what they were doing. Um, it just to me uh, was pretty pretty impressive that the community was so responsive and reactive. The concern I have is that if this particular situation happens again and the Ethereum network is much larger, it might be more difficult to contain such a scenario. Or if so it's what, contentious, for that matter. Yeah. So what what is your or if it's contentious exactly? So what what are your thoughts with regard to that, guys? Um, I mean, obviously the the philosophy behind this is that we don't care. But if we don't care also is self-defeating, that's kind of a problem. Like it's not that we don't care. It's just that, you know, the community decides, the community makes the decisions, people decide what their network does. Uh, but at the same time, it's also like there's this trade-off with that and that if things are too unwieldy or large, if there's too many people to reach out to, if you can't get the notice out quick enough and you have a zero-day vulnerability, which is introduced through a protocol change, 
um, you know, you have <laughs> you have zero day to fix it. Like you got to get on that. Um, so what 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 uh, what are your thoughts with regard to that and how we can maybe mitigate these kind of concerns going forward? Yeah, the ability to coordinate incidents like this is is a <laughs> let's say a weak but um, rapidly evolving uh, capability for the community. So we ran into this ourselves a few weeks back when we were trying to help Level K report their uh, gas consumption, gas token related security issue, um, where we needed to track down the security contact information for every single exchange and dial back about two, three months. And that wasn't anything that was possible. Nobody had made a list. And there certainly wasn't going to be any kind of, you know, a nice decentralized system that allowed you to contact all these people. We didn't even have email addresses. Um, so we tried our best to try and help the situation by putting together a set of best practices for incident coordination and for security contact information through a GitHub repository. We call it blockchain security contacts. And I am pretty sure that the Ethereum Foundation at least referenced that when they were trying to find people uh, and how to reach out to them. Yes, that's that. Um, that was part of the list of people to contact and who were, who like how to get a hold of them. Yeah. So th this kind of basic infrastructure, you know, it's frustrating, but most people and most companies don't create this stuff until a security incident happens. Um, you unfortunately learn by getting a few scars and um, it teaches you what you need to do for the next one. Uh, so I, I expect that to happen here. We'll probably see a lot of rapid infrastructure and like capacity building uh, after this event. But um, I'm sure it was really difficult over the last couple of days to figure out who to talk to. You know, there's an opposite problem too. Um, this is one the community hasn't figured out yet where, uh, so contract upgrades, right? Like you're an exchange, you decide to list an asset on your exchange. It's an ERC-20 token. An ERC-20 token is not like a flat digital asset. It's a smart contract and smart contracts can change in the future. So if somebody does a smart contract upgrade and changes the logic behind that ERC-20 token, should the asset be listed or delisted from the exchange that are previously approved it? And how will the exchange find out about it? I have no idea because uh, most companies that produce smart contracts are not announcing to the world that they have made a code change. So it's kind of on exchanges to monitor that information. And there's no way, like, how do they ask, is that an authorized change? Because, um, you know, maybe you broadcast like, hey, we're upgrading this, but that broadcast itself might be malicious. Somebody could have taken control of whatever keys or web server or email address that you have. Um, so the whole kind of supply chain here uh, also exposes a lot of these same risks where communication is not trustworthy. Um, and there's a lot of potential uh, issues with coordination that I see possibly cropping up in the future. Well, what you just did is give me an idea for an EIP where if somebody was to actually do a smart contract upgrade, it must emit an event. So yep. the, the exchanges could just monitor the chain and if they see that event then they have to change their change you know do whatever their their response is for that particular event well the event's not itself enough right because someone can broadcast like hey i'm going to upgrade but you still need to get some kind of confirmation from a person behind it like this was intentional here's what it does you need to describe it um because uh you know it, it may change the underlying fundamentals of that of that asset 
Yeah, then we... they can build procedures around that, meaning that if they see that event and they haven't pre-approved it, then it gets delisted on their exchange. Yeah, right? sure. Matthias, yeah. you have something there? Yeah, uh, we definitely agree with uh, Dan's statement there. So actually, some of our clients um, have uh, upgrade features where if they want to upgrade the, the contract, it goes through some grace periods. So they can only upgrade the contract by kind of announcing an upgrade. Um, and then two weeks later, they can actually upgrade it. Um, so I think that's something, I mean, even though I, I would uh, like for such things to be more standardized, um, if, I think that's something that people can adopt fairly quickly. It comes with the obvious disadvantage that if you have to do some emergency upgrades, then that won't be so fast. But um, to me, um, the upgrades really conflict with this whole immutability idea. And therefore, I think they should be restricted somewhat significantly. So I, um, I'm definitely in favor of, of some, some good handling. And in theory, then, then very um, standardized processes can happen, right? In theory, you can say, okay, first of all, I'm announcing this upgrade. Now someone's going to review this code and then approve that this particular code hash. And now that we have soon X code hash in the, as an, as an uh, EVM instruction, the, after the upgrade happened, the, the exchange will actually check that the upgrade happened correctly. And then afterwards, otherwise we'll delist the token. So there, in theory, things could be nice, but yeah, I guess we're, we're a bit further away from that. I think a part of this that I want to bring up that like, uh dealing with permissionless systems we can't enforce uh, at the technical level any of these things people could do whatever the hell they want um and what we're like another experiment in this in this entire thing is social consensus and what we choose as the right thing to do or um safe thing to do at a social level and it's more maybe even appropriately labeled socially emergent consensus um, what exchanges choose to list and how they choose to list it is up to their, their opinion and then how the community interacts with that thing kind of at the end of the day, gives us an idea of what everyone is doing is the right thing to do. Well, you know, kind of, but like that's part of the experiment in these things because they're permissionless is that any individual or company can do whatever they want. It's up to the entire community to decide what's the right thing to do. And that's usually shown through where money flows and how it flows. So I'll mention that one of the best references for building a system for time-locked upgrades is the Gemini dollar. Uh, it's one of the talks that was given at our December Empire Hacking, where we have some video and slides, and I, I would love it if more companies building upgrade systems reference that in their own design. Yeah, on this we have the ongoing discussion about how much to share, how much to publish. Um, the good thing about Ethereum is like you have this ERCs, right? ERC-20, that's not an EIP-20. That is um, something which is a standard now, which um, people agreed on by showing that it's actually the, a very good thing to do. And um, I'm actually in favor of having something like that for upgradability, just by practice, just by people saying like, look, this is a standard we follow, um, not because the EVM forces us to do, but because the um, consensus for good code is like that and yeah, that kind will... of though not everyone follows it they add functionality to it so on and so forth that's more like a standardized minimal functionality in in, in practice exactly and then other, other ones might might be more about um practices on how 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 do you have to handle your keys right no one talks about this um 
it's it's uh, of course we sometimes hear from people who get hacked just in the very traditional way and then you ask them well what did you do with your private keys well i have this computer and they own the computer right this is um security doesn't stop only on this level and what's good practice doesn't stop there and i like that uh, a lot of these things aren't enforced on the um, very lowest level of um, the EVM, but that sensible projects have to figure that out and, and are doing it and are um, greatly uh, improving over time. I am, of course, in favor of publishing all security findings to say, hey, this is what we found. Trade of Bits does that through regular blog posts. Um, we do it through publishing most of our audits and so that people see, look, this is what can happen. This is how to handle it. Um, and what the scan showed is that a lot of people follow best practices because best practices around smart contract development did actually prevent um, this reentrancy to be attackable in many smart contracts. And, and we found some smart contracts that are vulnerable, but so far, no major token, no major crowd sale, no major um, multi-sig wallet, because um, the people follow good practices in development, um, which, which had to develop over time and which we have to continuously share. As good as we are at publishing information, both chain security and trail of bits, it's, it's really unfortunate that there's still so much hidden knowledge kind of locked up inside the audit reports that we both publish. Um, if you really wanted to get to be a expert in smart contract security, you'd go and dig through all of our past archive of published documents. There's some hidden gems uh, still in there that I don't think the rest of the community has caught on to yet. I would agree. And I think that's a great way to kind of wrap up this episode. Is there anything that we should have asked y'all or gotten to that we didn't get a chance to, starting with uh, Jocelyn? Uh, <clears throat> no, I think we, we did a pretty good uh, tour of all the recent uh, important information in the security ecosystem I can, I can think of. Dan, and also please feel free to uh, take this time to, to, sh to shill whatever you do and get people to come to you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so if there's two things that people do after listening to this talk, um, it's probably uh, check out our blog because we have a great set of videos for you to learn more about security in Ethereum and blockchain security. Um, and then two is you should pip install Slither Analyzer um, and Securify, really. I mean, there's no downside to installing more than one tool. But I think these things are out there and it's really important that people start to use the tools and knowledge that our companies have put out. Um, it's uh, it's only going to happen if people start like taking some effort, and that's the easiest thing you can do. Yes. Uh, yeah. So uh, luckily, Dan already did the shilling for us, so I can shift. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, so I think um, we, I mean, we, I think we characterized the current situation quite well, but we also said we don't know the full story yet. So I mean. Um, I think we should all, uh, we all, even though we all agree it was the right decision to postpone, um, I think it might still be interesting to see eventually what, what's going to come out because uh, I think we still potentially can can find out more, can can find more contracts, and if anything, this shows, as Dan said, that maybe we need some super powerful tool that really can can show us what 
the effects are on the whole blockchain and and what um yeah what what really changes when we change this uh, uh when we introduce this new erp so i think um there there can be some exciting things coming out of this uh, little mishap and um but yeah um the last thing i want to say is um it, it was touched on before in terms of communication where where also i was quite impressed with the communication but i was also super impressed with the quick release speeds of uh, parity go ethereum truffle all of these projects that uh, were just super fast to release uh, the new clients i would definitely agree with that having you know, been involved with those channels and, and and saw like people really 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 work and spend a lot of time trying to make sure that happened quickly i was very impressed with the the, the quickness of response and, and quality of it um and i think that about wraps it up uh audience listeners if you enjoyed this click the like button share it with all your friends tell your dog etc uh we'll be you can find us at hashing it out.stream or at the bitcoin podcast.com you can join the slack and then uh join us in conversation to f- talk about what we're to talk about next or give us ideas or even throw us money if you want to um speaking of money uh, you know we are always open to sponsorships uh <laughs> we look for we're, we're trying to make this a uh at least pay for itself so feel you know feel free to reach out to us uh petty at hashing it out.stream and uh colin at hashing it out.stream it's Corey uh, at hashing it out.stream is it i'm pretty sure it's petty uh, you're it? right it's petty it's Corey for every other email that i have i don't know why i did that <laughs> Yeah, it's petty at Ashton. And then you can also reach out to us on Twitter uh, at Colin Couchet. That's C O L L I N C U S C E. And Corey at Corey Pe- Cor Petty, C O R P E T T Y. And we are also hashing it out pod on Twitter as well. So, and thanks, guys. Thanks for all the work you did to help us mitigate this problem. And I look forward to uh, continue using the quality tools y'all make. Thank you, Corey and Colin. That was a great podcast.